Thank you. Uh, it's um, my pleasure to, to introduce to you, uh, to speak to us today, Ron Epps. Uh, Ron is a, uh, it, it, most of you I'm sure got the email or something and have seen Ron's background, but he uh, earned his um, PhD from Kansas State University in Administration and Foundations uh, and then went on to spend his career in education. Uh, his last two postings, uh, one was in central Illinois where he was superintendent of schools and then his last one and the reason we're blessed to have him now in South Carolina is uh, he was superintendent of schools, Richland District 1 school district, which is the big school district in Columbia. But um, at least for me personally, um, more important than that is the fact that I've been able to, to get to know Ron. Uh, he's a nationally respected and known educator, um, served on a number of um, foundations and, and as a mentor to younger educators now through something called the Broad Foundation, which is an extremely prestigious um, uh, place to be. But we met six or seven years ago. Some of you know that I'm on the board of the South Carolina Public Charter School District, which is a statewide school district formed by the legislature for the sole purpose of chartering schools around the state. And um, Ron came on that board a few months after me, and that's how we've gotten to know each other. Uh, Ron, I'll, I'll never forget his first board meeting. What he didn't know was that he was he was walking into an absolute hornet's nest. Uh, he he showed up, and and those of us who had been on the board for a while knew that it was going to be a meeting full of of um, fireworks, to say the least. And I remember when he walked in and he introduced himself, I sat there and thinking, this poor sucker has no idea what he's getting into. <laughs> and, um, but then I observed how he handled that in the next two or three meetings um, and, and was amazed at his grace, the fact that when he would open his mouth to speak, it was kind of like the E.F. Hutton ads, everybody just stopped and listened. And, and so the first couple of meetings, I, I said to myself, this is a guy I need to get to know. Um, because he's really got some, some depth and some skills and, and knowledge that, that I don't possess. Um, Ron is a man of deep faith. He thinks deeply about things, and he cares passionately about what he cares about. Uh, and the main thing that he cares about is children, and especially the children of South Carolina. And um, while we often disagree, and this is the great thing about being a friend of Ron's is that you can disagree with him and he'll disagree with you very openly and as passionately as, as anything else, but it does not affect your, your relationship with him. And that's unusual, as y'all know. Uh, it, it, it's extremely unusual. I never doubt his motives. As I say, I disagree a lot, but I never doubt his I know what Ron's motives are, and that is the best thing for the children of South Carolina. And... Um, so he's actually the, the other board member that I turn to when I need advice or trying to figure out something we're dealing with. He's the one I call. Uh, he's one of the most intellectually honest men I've ever met. And so uh, it's, it's really my pleasure to introduce him to you. And, and what's a real pleasure is to be able to introduce him to you and introduce him as my friend. That means a lot. Ron?
afternoon. I, uh, Don, am very, um, I want to thank you for that introduction. Uh, I told him when I arrived the only thing that I was nervous about was the fact that he was introducing me. <laughs> and I had no idea what he was going to say. Um, but I do consider Don a, a dear friend. Uh, we've gotten to know one another uh, through years of, of working through very difficult and contentious issues. And while we don't always see eye to eye, uh, I can think of no one who is providing more service on behalf of the children of South Carolina than Don. Our job on the State Charter School Board, and this is not what I'm here to talk about, in fact, I have to be very careful to watch, watch the time, because Don asked me to tell a story that I wasn't planning on telling, so I'm going to do that and leave out some other things, but it's going to cause me to be, be mindful uh, uh, of, the, of the time. Um, when I was appointed by the governor to serve on the state charter school board, um, and I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Don, but I had a lot of um, people that I considered friends who were very angry with me for taking that appointment because I had worked over my career to establish myself as someone who um, believed in public schools, and I still believe in public schools, who believed in the work of public schools, and as one of my friends said, we thought you were an advocate for public schools. And my response was, I've never been an advocate for public schools. I have always been an advocate for children. And children happen to be in public schools. And that's where I worked. And so my, my advocacy in that regard is related to doing the best we can for the children of this state, in fact, for the children of this nation. Because over the past several years, I've had a consulting business and I've worked with school districts all over the United States, probably 20 or 30 of the largest school districts in the United States as executive coaches to superintendents. Uh, one uh, of that, during part of that stint, with your current superintendent here in the Charleston area, uh, Jarita Postlewaite, who also worked as an executive coach to superintendents throughout the country as well. But I'm, I'm not here to talk about public schools. I'm not here to talk about that work uh, in education, except to the degree as it relates to when I was called and asked to come, I was asked, well, what, what do you want to talk about? And, and when I got here, Peter asked me, he said, Ron, uh, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I want to give my personal testimony as to how my faith and my professional life converge. Where my faith and my personal life converge. So if I end up talking about public schools, it's not from the standpoint of my work as a superintendent or my work as a consultant to superintendents. It's from the standpoint 
of my life and the convergence of my professional life and my faith life because it has been very, very important to me. In fact, I define my, uh, I categorize my professional career in three stages. The first I call the preparation stage, the next I call the dedication stage, and the next I call the consecration stage. And they were three distinct stages that as I've gone back and I've looked and as I talked to young aspiring superintendents, I, I talked about, talk about this not in that terminology, but in the context of evolving, maturing as an individual and as a person of, of faith. The, the story Don asked me to talk about, to tell about, was something I had shared with some of the members of the board. When, when uh, I was born, my grandmother, who was a person of deep, deep, per, deep faith, very, very, very deep faith, abiding faith. And so I was born, uh, according to her and my mother and my father, I had a veil over my face. Now, those of you who know, that's just a membrane, membrane a, 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 uh, that covers uh, many babies' faces when they're born, and it's pulled off. And, and, but to my grandmother, that was a sign from God. And it was a sign that I was supposed to enter the ministry. Now, that was all right growing up, because she'd tell me, that's my special grandson. That's my, he's special. And I needed to be told I was special because I, I, I had an older brother. He was, man, he was smart as a whip. He's 6'5", he, he nice look, handsome guy. And, and then here comes little scrawny Ronnie. And, and, and at the height of my growth, I was 5'11 and 3 quarters. And don't ever lose that 3 quarters. On, on my driver's license, it says 3 quarters. 5'11 and 3 quarters. And I used to hang from a... a a bar in the closet trying to help God give me that extra quarter. Because if I ever reached six foot, I knew, boy, I was, I was going to be like my brother. But here comes little scrawny Ronnie, who has a speech impediment and has all these things going against him, except a grandmother who says, that boy is special. He was born with a veil over his face. But it wasn't until I became right before my teenage years that the other part of it, the reality of the other part came when she said, and he's going to be a preacher. Now, you don't tell, you don't tell a pre-adolescent boy he's going to be a preacher. I cried, and that was, please, God, if that's in the plan, let's talk about changing this plan, because... I did not want to be a preacher. And my grandmother insisted, this is my special grandson, this is my special boy, and he's going to be a preacher. And so I worked all through my teenage years to convince God I wasn't teaching material. I wasn't preaching material. I was determined not to follow that course and to help God understand that it wasn't the course that he wanted me to follow either. Because at a very early age, I had a relationship with Christ. And that was as a result of my father. I had a father who also, I, I came through 
You know, I hear people get up and they talk about how poor they were and, and they overcame all these obstacles of poverty. Well, I, I was poor, but everybody was poor back then and you didn't even know you were poor. I mean, you know, you had enough to eat. You ate parts of, a, of animals that, <laughs> that if you had more money, you wouldn't have eaten those parts back those, in those days, but that was everybody. I mean, you just thought that was life. So it was my, it was my belief. I, I started with, a, with a, a strong faith belief because having two parents and a father who had a strong faith belief, and it helped me to understand the importance of a father, especially of a father in the life of a child, uh, and, and that father showing their children their faith belief. But I spent those early years trying to overcome some things, that, that uh, some other obstacles, and that main obstacle, that speech impediment. I just had this issue. I said in classes, if they had had classes, if they had had special ed classes in those days, which they didn't, public law 94142 didn't even exist in those days, and so you didn't have to educate those children that were considered to be uneducatable. So... The, the severely, severe special ed kids never reached the public schools. But, so I wasn't severely limited, but I had the speech impediment. And it, I went through segregated schools and was fortunate enough to have one of the first teachers that was trained in speech pathology in the area of Kansas City. And so she decided to work with little short, runny, Ronnie, and help him overcome that speech, uh, uh, speech impediment. Now, it happened that she was really nice to look at, too. <laughs> Jeannie Ellison, boy, was she. And, and her methodology was to have me touch her face and feel the words coming out of her mouth. And boy, did I touch her face. <laughs> And I felt how she formed those words. I felt how they came out of her mouth. And the next thing I knew, I was talking just like Jeannie Ellison. Now I've got two problems. One, God has ordained me to be a minister before I was born, according to my grandmother. And two, I talk like my teacher who talked very proper, which little black kids call that talking white. So I had two strikes against me at that point in that I talked like she talked. I enunciated words like she enunciated words, and that didn't give me much street credit on the streets in Kansas City. So that began the first part of that preparation for me that I called the preparation period, in which I began to I recognized the power of Christ in my life as a result of this strong father and this household that was a, that was a faith-based household. And I began to realize that I could learn. I began to realize that I could learn, that, that I had a desire to learn. And so I began to pursue knowledge right through graduation uh, from college I was in the pursuit of knowledge because I thought 
I thought that the answers to my profession and the answers to life lay in the pursuit of knowledge. And it wasn't until later, it wasn't until the next phase that I realized that really what I needed to pursue was not knowledge, but was to pursue wisdom. And I started the dedication. That was the beginning of the dedication phase of my professional life, where I was dedicated to becoming the best I could be at the job I was in, and that that was going to be a result of acquiring wisdom And that wisdom was tied to understanding the nature of Christ. You see, because in the first phase, that preparation phase, I understood I had a relationship with Christ. I knew who Christ was in my life. I knew the price he had paid for me. And through high school and through college, my life reflected that. And my first teaching careers, my life reflected that. And I earned my master's in this pursuit of knowledge. But then in that second phase, that dedication phase, the pursuit of wisdom, I knew I had to find out more. I had to understand better just who Christ was. What were the characteristics of Christ? Because I couldn't be like him if I didn't understand really what were the essence of who, what was the essence of who he was. So that those were the things that I aspired for. Those were the things that I strove to become. The other part of the dedication piece, so I was still in the pursuit of, of making a, a financial pursuit. I was still in the financial pursuit. I had a family. I had to... to raised two children, a wife, and I was an educator. And how do you reconcile those issues? Well, it was in that third phase, the consecration phase, that I began to realize that I reconciled those issues by majoring in those issues, being led by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was in that period that there were things that I wasn't even seeking for that came my way. Recognition came my way, not through these innate skills that I had, not through anything that I was, was, but through the things that were the nature of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 And these were the things that I strove to that I identified as a nature of the Christ that I was serving. His omnipotence, His omniscience, and His omnipresence. It was then that I realized it didn't matter whether I stayed in Kansas. It didn't matter wherever I went. Christ was there, and if I pursued His will... I would find him there and I would have the provisions to pursue his will. Because I recognize that God provides the provision for his purpose. I recognize that the second key recognition was that the essence of God's character is love. And so as I looked at and I spoke uh, with with Don and, and, and with Peter this morning... 
I talked about the first teacher convocation I had in Columbia at, in Richland One. When I decided I needed to bring all of my teaching staff and all of the bus drivers and all of the uh, food service people and all the custodians, bring them into one place and have a convocation so we could understand what our challenge was. Now, how could I do that in a public setting without violating uh, uh, those issues that people would, who were not of the same faith would have? And I talked to the them about one thing that everyone came to agreement on. We all love the children. But you know, Peter was talking to Christ before Christ ascended into heaven, right after the crucifixion, uh, uh, 40 days after his crucifixion. And he asked, Christ asked Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, yes, Lord, I love you. And they walked a little further. And he turned to Peter again and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter kind of scratched his head and he said, uh, yes, Lord, I love you. And they walked a little further and he asked Peter again. He said, Peter, do you love me? Well, he was asking Peter not about the same kind of love, about, but about three different kinds of love. And so I said to my staff, if we love these children, it has to be more than an emotional love. It has to be a love that demonstrates the, the, the commitment to do the hard things, to make the hard decisions with them that demonstrate more than just an emotive love. So the essence, the essence of Christ that I wanted to emulate was that of love, love of those with whom you disagree, love with those even who don't love you back. The second element was of unity. And one of the things that seems to be tearing us apart as a nation, tearing us apart in organizations, as I go into, organ one of the things I do in organizations is I go in and we in organizational development work, assess what is stopping organizations from reaching their full potential. And more often than not is the fact of unity of purpose. God expect, expects his church to be unified. I took a group of children on a cruise recently, and in coming back we were on a chartered bus and we were driving uh, down 95, we were going to come to 26 and come up to 26 on our way to Columbia. And it, the traffic was so bad, the bus driver got off uh, 95 and took a bypass. Now, I can't tell you how he went because <laughs> not being from Columbia, I did not know the back roads we, we took. But we came down a road that every two miles I saw a church. Every two miles down that road was a church. And I asked myself the question, you know, if, if you drive through Columbia, it's hardly, you can hardly go a, a mile that you don't see a church of one form or another on a corner. So if the church represents the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is unified, how do we have so much division in our communities? How do we have so much division 
in our, in our country. The essence of Christ, the essence of God, is unity. The other thing that was reflected in this third phase of my professional life was pursuing purpose. You see, because I all of a sudden dis- discovered that all my running away from the ministry helped me, caused me to recognize that I didn't run away, I didn't escape the ministry. I just escaped preaching. Because my ministry became the ministry of teaching. My purpose became the education of children. And I used to ask my staff, tell me which kids can be our throwaway kids. Which kids can we not afford to educate well? You know, when my dad retired, there were 11 people working for every person retired. 11 people working for every person retired. I'm now retired. In three years, I mean, by the year 2020, there will be three three people working for every person retired. I cannot afford, on a very selfish way, I can't afford to have a third of them locked up. In a very selfish way, I can't have, afford to have a third of them less than maximum, maximally productive. So even if you look at it from a very selfish standpoint, all of us become, all of us have a ministry. Mine became the ministry of education. It became my ministry in this third phase, in the consecration phase, when I began to recognize that The things you feed the most are the things that get the strongest. In my first two phases, I fed the carnal. I fed the things that appealed, that that strengthened the body. But in that third phase, I began to, to feed those areas that strengthened the spirit. I would challenge you to read a book called The Spiritual Man which addresses this very issue, how do we feed the Spirit? Well, for me, it became immersing myself in the Word. Immersing myself. It was no longer enough to say, I go to church every Sunday. And not only do I go to church every Sunday, I take my child, my children to church every Sunday. And we go to Sunday school. I go to early service. So then after, uh, after early service, we even go to Sunday school. But that wasn't enough because I had to start going to Bible study. I had to start understanding this stuff I was pursuing because it was about the pursuing of wisdom and therefore the pursuit of the nature of Christ. What is the nature of Christ? Defining for me, and I'm not saying what your definition is. I'm not trying to preach to you on this issue. I'm simply saying this is what brought the convergence of my professional pursuit with my spiritual pursuit. I began to realize that part of the nature of Christ is purpose. Part of the nature of Christ is purpose. I was was talking to my son uh, who's a financial advisor and he was lamenting after the economic downturn and, and the regulations that have followed the, uh, in the financial area 
uh, he was lamenting how it's hurting his business, and he, and he was going on and on and on. And he said, you know, Dad, he said, what's difficult for me is I could make money if I just set about making money. I could make more, a lot more money. He said, but it's hard for me to advise someone who comes in and sits with me and talks about what they should do with their money. It's hard for me to advise them in a way that'll make me the most money instead of the way that'll make do them the most good. He said, and that's what I've got to do. I've got to advise them in ways that will be right for them. And sometimes that costs me lots of money. And I said to him, you know what? You just made me feel good as a father. Because the issue is not the pursuit of money. It's not the pursuit of financial gain. It is the pursuit of purpose. And where God, where your purpose is aligned with God's purpose for you, he will give you the provision. My experience became loud and clear in this final stage, this consecration stage for me, that as long as I kept my life aligned what, with what I thought God's purpose was for me, he always made provisions. I left my job as deputy superintendent in Topeka, Kansas at a time when, when everyone thought I was a rising superstar. And I left because I felt God's purpose was for me to be someplace else. And I went someplace where all of my mentors told me not to go. Rockford, Illinois. I don't know if anyone here is from Rockford, Illinois. I don't know if anyone knows anything about Rockford, Illinois. Rockford, Illinois is one of the most troubled school districts in the nation. And at the time, they had had no superintendent last over two years. Their last five superintendents, none of whom lasted over two years. All of my advisors, all of my mentors said, do not go to Rockford. But God was leading me to Rockford. And I won't tell you the story about Rockford, but I stayed there six years. I intended to stay five years. When I interviewed with the board, I told them I'll commit to five years. I stayed six years. In the fifth year, the newspaper, Rockford was under a, the, one of the last busing orders, DSEG orders in the country. I, you know what a busing order is. You, you, you use buses to move kids in ways to get the right numbers. And, and it was a, a, it, it's one of the most troublesome kinds of desegregation. And, and, and I knew that, that at the moment I, ordered, I implemented that order from the court, I knew that my family was going to have a different experience there. But I can tell you with no exaggeration that God made that period of time one of the richest periods of time in my professional career. The newspaper quoted me in an article that said, in which I said, we will be out from under this DSEG order in 10 years. And boy, the teachers union ate me alive. Everybody ate me alive. The lawyers ate me alive. The reason the lawyers ate me alive, both said my lawyers ate me alive and the other side of ate me alive. The reason is everybody was making money under that DSEG order. Both sets of lawyers. It didn't matter who. I hope I'm not offending any, any lawyers in here. But, but the fact is, in law, everybody gets paid. And both sets of lawyers, they didn't care whether we were under that order for 30 years or three years. 
So when I said we'd be out from under it in 10 years, it was because I had every intent of following the order, implementing the order, and getting out from under the order. School districts were never made to be uh, administered by the federal government. Never. And the school, and everybody went berserk. A week later, the magistrate judge that was administering the court order came out in the same newspaper and said, this, at the rate this district is going, you will be out from under this order in 10 years. Never in the United States had there been a mandatory DSEG order in which any district got out from under that order in less than 20 years. 10 years after we began to implement the order in Rockford, Illinois, they were out from under the order. Don't, don't trust me, go, go Google. You know, when you say things nowadays, people go Google to see if you're telling. Google that. That wasn't Ron Epps. That was Ron Epps pursuing God's will and his work and God provided the provision for his purpose. And I came to Columbia, South Carolina, where test scores were going down, 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 faster, faster than a, a piece of lead in the water. And we said we were going to improve test scores longitudinally over time. It was going to be continuous improvement. I had been to some, some training, relate, some national caliber, international caliber training on, on uh, analyses of those issues that will allow you to do continuous improvement. Some of you may be in quality control and you know what I'm talking about, Six Sigma and, and, and other issues such as that. We implemented those issues and we had five years of double digit increase in the school district. Not because of what Ron Epps did, but because of the pursuit of God's purpose. I had never been to South Carolina. I had never been to the state of South Carolina. I had heard terrible stories, not only about, as an African American, not only about the South, but more specifically about South Carolina. I'd never traveled in the South. But I believed that the Spirit was leading me to take that position, and I came to, I promised them five years. Six years later, I left the school district at a time that we had had significant gains, significant improvements in all variables, and at a time the district was offering me a five-year extension on the contract. Next time you invite me back, I'll tell you the story about how I left. But that, my, my point is this, and, and I want to conclude with this, that to the degree that our life is aligned with God's purpose and with God's will, we cannot fail. The other characteristic, the other thing that God expects of us, I believe, is faith and courage. And I believe they're synonymous. I, I, I believe they're, they're almost synonymous because fear and faith are antithetical. Fear and faith are antithetical. And there are decisions that all of us make on a daily basis. Some of those decisions require our absolute faith and the absence of the the absence of being controlled by our fear. I almost said the absence of fear. You have fear, but your faith 
should always overcome that fear. It was on that faith that I went into business for myself. Sixty-something years old and starting my first business. And God told me, I believe, the Spirit told me to go boldly. And it was successful. And so I come here not preaching to you about your relationship with Christ, your relationship with a higher being, but just sharing with you my experience and the points in my life where my faith and my profession converged. And I can say without question and without equivocation that to, greet, to the degree that I stood on faith, it's the degree that I can count the successes in that professional career. I, I haven't told you about the failures. <laughs> there were a lot of them. I, I will tell you about one of them. When I first went to Rockford, one of the first things that I felt I was being led to do, to do I was in constant prayer because half the time I really didn't know what I was doing with that kind of a legal, uh, in that kind of a legal environment. But one of the things I was told, to do, I felt led to do was to fire our lawyers. Fire our lawyers. How in the world can the lawyer for the opposition and the lawyer for the, uh, the, lawyer for the plaintiff and the lawyer for the district be on the same page on everything, carrying this order into infinity? And I didn't do it. Because, why? Because I was scared. They had more experience in the district that I did than I did. They had been there longer than I had, and I wouldn't fire them. That mistake came back to haunt me in many, many ways. One of the last things I did in leaving the district was to fire the attorneys. And boy, that opened doors for, my for the person that followed me, that, um, that showed me I should have listened to the leadings of the Spirit. Let me stop and say how proud and pleased I am to have been invited here to share with you my story and, and just my thoughts on the issue of faith. It's been a, pl a pleasure.